At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? This is Jesus' words. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. It's the word of God. Let me pray. Uh, Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. And what you have spoken and said is reliable, it's faithful, it's true. We can believe you today. So Father, I would ask that you would just give us grace and that you would help us in humility today as we seek to understand and, and learn more of you. As we come to a passage that's... Um, it may be somewhat challenging for us to understand. Today, Lord, would you give us grace in that. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would take your word and that he would cause your word to work within our hearts and our lives so that we are more like you, so that we have a deeper faith, and so that we obey you and take the gospel to all the nations. We thank you that you've spoken. We thank you that you've revealed your grace to us in Christ Jesus. So now help us, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is Jesus a liar? Is Jesus a liar? I know many of you would just immediately go, no, no, he's not a liar. But that question was raised to me uh, one moment when I was pastoring college students in Northern California. Uh, Stephanie and I were living in Northern California. I was pastor of college and young adult ministries at our church out there. And our college ministry had an on-campus uh, ministry to, uh, to students at a local junior college, the junior college in our community. We would go and we, we officially, our, our church ministry officially had registered at the college as an on-campus club, uh, you know, like the chess club or the Spanish club or the uh, driving convertibles club. They had all these different clubs and so you could register your group or your thing if you had a, a faculty sponsor, you could register your group as a club on the campus. And so we, we did that with our ministry at the church and uh, were able to register as a, a, an official campus club there. And with that came the opportunity twice a semester for what they called club days. And so all of the clubs on campus would meet in the, in the open commons area between the dining hall and the library at the junior college. And we would set out tables and we would have just information about how to join our club or information about what the club was all about. And, and it was just kind of an open fair sort of deal. Students walking by can interact at 
their uh, leisure or not with us. And, but it gave us a great opportunity and with the ministry that we had to our students there to connect with other uh, students, to get to know them, to be able to invite them into uh, our events and activities and really invite them into relationships so that we could share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Uh, the college itself had a religion department as well, and, and the religion department was headed up by uh, a guy who had gone to a uh, Christian university. He had gone and gotten his degree at a Christian seminary, but he was an avowed atheist. Um, in fact, he liked to poke holes, in his mind, into the uh, Christian faith. He liked to, to deconstruct and to even to deceive uh, people, students on campus through his teaching. And so, Every time we had one of these club days come around, our ministry was there, we'd have our tables, we'd have some information about when we met, and we'd just be talking with students. Every time this professor, he would bring a, a group of his students, it's like he planned it. He'd bring a group of his students that were all with him, and he wanted to convince that Christianity was a lie, and they'd come around to the table, and, and he'd, he'd eventually get to talking with some of our students. We knew who he was, but he'd get to talking to some of the students in the college ministry, and he, he would say, well, your Bible, is it true? And like, yes, it is. And he'd go, oh, really? Okay. Well, open it up to Matt, and he'd take us to this passage. He'd take these students to this passage here in Matthew. He said, open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. Read that for me. The student would read that passage to him, and then he goes, okay, keep reading, and read on down to verse 34. And they'd keep reading, and he'd get to verse 34, and then he'd stop him, and, and here's verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And then the professor would ask the student, he said, so tell me, verses 29 to 31, what is that talking about? And I would tell you, nine times out of ten, the student, the college student would say, what's well, talking about the second coming of Jesus back from heaven to earth? And the professor, he, he, the trap was laid. He'd get this big Cheshire grin smile on his face. And he'd be like, I gotcha. And he'd say, well, tell me about verse 34 then, because Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He'd, and then he'd look at him with a smile on his face, and he'd say, if verses 29 to 31 are about the second coming of Jesus, and Jesus has said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, either Jesus has already come back again, and you dummies missed him, or Jesus is a liar. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He has no clue. And the, most of the college students would just kind of stand there kind of bewildered. What do they say? Could this guy be right? What, what, what do we do with that? He'd smile his big grin again. He'd nod to the students that he brought with him. and like, see, I'm right. He won the little mini debate, and then he'd walk off. He'd disturb the faith of, of many, and he'd sow doubt on the truthfulness of the Bible and on Jesus himself. I recognize this morning, you might be reading this, and you might have heard the question. I just asked from that skeptical, atheistic professor and go, well, what do we do with this? I mean, the Bible is true. That's one of the challenges for us, though, in interpreting the Bible or in making sense of it, that's what it means to interpret it, it's to deal with sometimes the apparent contradictions and even challenges that arise when we interpret it. We're not perfect people, and our understanding is limited. I'll say this this morning, we believe, I believe firmly that the Bible is without error in everything that it asserts and teaches. The Bible is faithful and true and trustworthy in every part. We can believe Jesus' infallible, trustworthy, and true word. There is no contradiction in the Scripture. And yet, when a professor like this makes a comment, he makes that, 
And when Jesus makes a comment like this that he makes in the passage, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. And we have to deal with the reality that something's off. It's probably not a discrepancy in or a contradiction in the Bible itself. What really it is issue here is our understanding, our understanding and interpretation of the Bible itself. The part that's wrong isn't the Bible, it's our perception of it, our understanding, our coming to it to discern it. And it's true of everybody. Every one of us brings certain presuppositions, we bring certain cultural baggage, we bring certain worldviews and perspectives and lenses and context and the like to the Bible and everything we read. We oftentimes just read meaning into the Scripture. Because of that, we have to recognize that we have different lenses that we see the Scripture through. And these lenses color and understand how we believe Scripture teaches or what it says. I want to suggest this morning, again, very humbly, very humbly, that we have often understood verses 29 through 31 with the glasses of the 20th and 21st century on. We hear it in light of our modern day, our modern context, our modern thinking about how things unfold and what they look like. And we have not heard this passage with the first century glasses on, the way that Jesus and His disciples would have understood this passage, the way that Matthew and his readers, his original readers would have understood this. In that, instead of hearing this in the first century view, we've heard it in the 20th, 21st century view, and Jesus is still talking about the destruction of the temple and his vindication in heaven here in this passage. You can take and look from Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, all the way down to here at the end of this, verse 35, and see that Jesus is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. He's setting that up for his disciples. He's going to start talking about his second coming. We'll get to that next week in verse 36. But in this section of Matthew's gospel, he's talking about what for us has already happened for his disciples that would still be future to them. I want to help you this morning to be confident in every word that Jesus has spoken. And I want you to have the confidence that every word Jesus has spoken will prove true and that Jesus' words will never fail. I want you this morning to be able to rely on Jesus' unchanging word, even when it seems like there is a contradiction in the Bible itself. There's no contradiction. The contradiction is our understanding of it. And so I want to help you understand this this morning so that you can trust His enduring, unchanging, reliable word. Now, I say that, let me give you a few caveats before, and I never preach with caveats before, but I feel like I've got to give a couple of these this morning, just a few things to help us before we get into the passage itself. This is my attempt to reconcile the apparent contradiction that seems to exist between verse 34 and verses 29 to 31, and this is my best attempt. I've worked hard on this this week to help reconcile these things. But no, I am not infallible. <laughs> Stephanie could tell you that. Our kids could tell you that. A lot of you could tell me that. I am not infallible. I am not perfect, okay? My understanding is limited. My mind is limited. Many faithful, sound, biblical scholars have said that this passage is a reference to the future second coming of Jesus Christ. They're good and godly scholars and biblical interpreters. And I love them and value them deeply. Many scholars, good, faithful, biblical, sound scholars, have informed me and, and stand with me, I guess, if you will, on this and say, no, this is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and AD 70 and those events as well. 
And so we have two different interpretive paths here. Both come from solid, faithful, biblical Christians. And there are options in that way. So I'm going to give you my best take on it, my best understanding of the passage, but this is not a matter of primary doctrine. This is nothing that we should debate over or divide over, really, or diminish or scold or say that they're a heretic for. I may get it wrong, but I'm going to try my best, and I think I have a consistent argument, but this is not a matter of primary doctrine. Not only that, the second thing that I want to just bring as a caveat this morning is the point of this study, the point of our series here, is not for us to fixate on timelines of the end times. It's not for us to, to pull out charts and draw tables and figure out strategies for the end times. It's not for us to get puffed up with knowledge. Sometimes we grab theological positions and we, we become prideful and clever and think we're smart and we get puffed up with knowledge and we end up stopping loving our neighbors And sometimes theology can cause us to go completely off the rails and we end up building doomsday bunkers and we forget the purpose for which Jesus sent us here and called us to himself, which is to spread the good news of the gospel. The focus of this study is not for that to happen. It's for us to see what Jesus has called us to so that we can spread the gospel. So I want to help us this morning rely on Jesus' unchanging word. And it's a humble task and something that I would ask that you would have humility with me as well as we listen. Because... We need to hear this from the first century perspective, not so much from our perspective that we have here in the 21st century. So let me ask again the question, how would Jesus' disciples have heard and understood these verses? What What would they have concluded Jesus was talking about? Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew himself is writing to convince Jewish people, Israel, that Jesus is their Messiah, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, and that he is the king. The whole gospel of Matthew is about Jesus the king. And that's a very important thing to understand here. Every story that Matthew includes, everything that Matthew tells about the life and ministry and work of Jesus is outlining and displaying the authority and the status and the reality of Jesus as Messiah and king over Israel and over all things. Because of that, Matthew is very specific about what he communicates. He's just trying to lean into his Jewish audience and saying, here's Jesus, here's your king, believe him, accept him, understand his grace for you. In this passage, as Jesus teaches his disciples, as Jesus teaches this original Jewish audience, Matthew's audience, they would have heard three specific things. This is verses 29 through 31. Let me take us through this here. The first thing that Jesus' disciples, and remember, this is where this originated from, his disciples came to him. And they said, as they were leaving the temple mount, boy, this temple is great. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it awesome? It'll last forever. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Every stone will be turned and taken down. There will not be one stone upon another that will stand. And they're just like blown away. They can't comprehend that kind of thing. And so Jesus has taught them about the coming destruction, about the abomination of desolation and when these things will come. That's their question. They want to know, when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And then what will be the sign of your coming and the the end of the age? So Jesus starts to address them with these things. When you see in this text here, these things, that phrase there, you know that Jesus is talking about what is near future to the disciples or what's in our past, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in A.D. That's an important piece to understand that. Here in verse 29, Jesus says this. He says, immediately, after the tribulation of those days, 
those days being the destruction of the temple, the ruin of Jerusalem. He says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And Jesus has told them this abomination of desolation, this desecrating act will happen, and that's their clue to get out of Judea, get out of the city, run, flee. This, this great tribulation is going to befall Israel. Rome is going to go to war. They're going to seize Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. Get out. And then Jesus says, no, that immediately after, the, after that sign, after that abomination of desolation event, things are going to happen. It's going to seem like this. And he uses this interesting language. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of heaven will be shaken. What, what, what happens? What is Jesus talking about? He's using really graphic language here. And language that we would, with our current contemporary glasses, we would hear in one way. We'd hear it and go, oh yeah, obviously. End of the earth. Destruction of everything. Second coming. There it is. But remember, Jesus isn't talking to us directly. How would his disciples hear this? You know how we can, today, here and there, we can quote movie lines and we can just riff on whatever is in pop culture really quickly? You can make, say, a phrase and somebody immediately knows where that came from or immediately picks up on it. For instance, if I said to you, if I made a statement and I said, this is the way. Yeah, you're laughing. You know where that came from, right? That's from the Mandalorian, right? Many of us can do that well, and we get those cultural clues in those cultural contexts. Jesus himself here is speaking into a cultural clue or context that they would get. Uh, one scholar, Sam Storms, puts it this way. He says, remember, Jesus was speaking to a people saturated by Old Testament language, concepts, and imagery. From the earliest days of their lives, they memorized and were taught the Old Testament. Thus, when Jesus spoke to them of the things to come, he used prophetic vocabulary of the Old Testament, which they would recognize instantly. They'd get it right away. So when Jesus says here in this passage in verse 29, he's, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, he's actually referencing and quoting Old Testament Scripture. The Jews would have picked up on it. Oh, that's a reference to Isaiah 13.10. That's a reference to Isaiah 34.4. They'd hear those verses and they'd immediately know that's what it is. Jesus is using this figurative language here to help them understand what's going on. Isaiah 13.10 and Isaiah 34.4 speak about the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars will fall. And it's speaking of that in context of God's judgment on Babylon, on God's judgment of the nations. This is language of judgment. It's language of saying God's hammer is going to fall. Something's going to happen. You get it like this. When Ethan and I get to wrestling around the house, and we, we do this every once in a while, we'll all get kind of passionate, and we'll get stirred up, and, and Ethan will kind of yell out and say, the hammer's going to fall, you know, and he'd be ready to bring the boom, you know, and he's using big vocabulary and big language to, to talk to me about how I'm about to go down and be pinned to the ground. And that's not what's going to happen. There's no hammer going to fall. Ethan doesn't say, I'm going to bring the thunder, and he's got thunder coming out of his fists at all. He's just using big language, right? I just sweep the leg, and he's down on the ground, and we're done, right? <laughs> Here, Jesus is using this big, prophetic, judgment kind of language. He's telling his disciples, this is going to happen. This fall is going to occur. Jerusalem's going to be devastated and raised, and it'll be like sun will darken moon will give its light. Stars, he's using the symbolic prophetic language to get them to see this is God's judgment on Israel. Everything is falling apart. 
Jesus has been showing this to his disciples since chapter 21. If you go back to chapter 21 of Matthew, Jesus goes into the temple after the triumphal entry, and he begins to cleanse the temple. Not just physically, but he begins to cleanse the temple and deal with the the house of worship and the religious styles of that day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and everybody that would oppose Jesus as Messiah, and everybody that would bind the hearts and minds of the Jewish people away from their Messiah and add in their legalism and their religious rules and their religious practices. Jesus has been cleansing and purifying to the point where he leaves the temple And he says to Israel, he stands over Jerusalem, this is chapter 23, verse 37, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate. He just speaks of like, I longed to, I I wanted to bring you in, but you wouldn't have me. You rejected me in every way, and so judgment is coming. Judgment is falling upon them. So that's the first thing that Jesus' disciples would have heard when he uses this prophetic, apocalyptic language. God is dropping the hammer, so to speak, on Israel. He's bringing judgment there. Furthermore, then, the next thing that they would hear is what Jesus says in verse 30. Then will appear, and note here the location of this, in heaven. Then will appear in heaven. So it's not even a sense of it's going to be visible to us, but in heaven something's happening. The sign of the Son of Man. Here Jesus does it one more time. He uses a reference. He uses a cultural thing that they would have gotten to trigger their imagination and help them think about what they know. What do they know? They know Scripture. Now, When we read this phrase, the Son of Man, we immediately think of Jesus in His humanity. That was just the title that Jesus used to indicate He was fully man. Well, that's not just what that title references. Actually, it has a much deeper meaning. It's found there in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In heaven, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. Jesus is riffing on or borrowing their cultural language from Daniel 7. 7. This is Daniel 7. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. See how similar this is already sounding to what Jesus is saying? And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is what Jesus says here in verse 30. It's almost the same thing. Then they will appear in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And what Jesus does there is he takes Daniel 7, 13 and 14, and then he slides into the middle of it another phrase, another scripture passage. It's from Zechariah uh, chapter 7. What Jesus is doing there is showing them, here is the coming of the Son of Man and the presentation of the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days in heaven. He's vindicated. He's given power. He's given glory. He's given a kingdom. He's presented before him. And this happens in heaven. Jesus, the Son of Man, is receiving his glory. He's receiving his kingdom. One New Testament scholar says it this way. He says, in Daniel, this certainly refers not to a downward movement of this strange human figure, but to an upward movement. The Son of Man comes from the point of view of the heavenly world. That is, he comes from earth to heaven. His coming in this sense 
is not his return to earth after a sojourn in heaven. It is his ascension, his vindication, the thing which demonstrates that his suffering has not been in vain. So we ask the question, how will Israel know that God has rejected the temple worship, the temple leaders, the religious people of Jesus' day, and their legalistic and unjust systems of worship and power? He'll raise the temple to the ground. He'll remove that object of their idolatry and their legalism. And his son, Jesus, who was resurrected from the dead on the third day, will ascend to heaven and be vindicated and given the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Jesus slips in that passage in Zechariah to speak of the fact that Israel has rejected him. Israel has turned away from him. Then will appear the sign in in heaven in the Son of Man. The tribes of earth, this is the passage from Zechariah, the tribes of earth will mourn, or the tribes of the land will mourn. Israel will mourn. In Zechariah's context, they are mourning because they pierced him. They'll see that they have pierced the Savior. They have rejected their Messiah. And they will mourn because they turned away from him. And the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now note here the word for coming there in verse 30. It's not the technical word that Jesus and Paul and others use for the second coming. The technical word is the word parousia. That's actually used down there in verse 37. So like I said, next week we'll get into that second coming of Jesus. But here Jesus uses a different word. It's the word that just means arriving. He's existing there. He's coming there, as it were, but not the technical word for the second coming. So note here, Jesus, as he's speaking to them, he's telling them, Israel will be judged. The Son of Man, me, will be vindicated in heaven, be glorified. Again, N.T. Wright says this, first Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, these great dramatic earth-shattering events will reverse the verdicts of the Jewish court and the pagan executioners. They will show that he is indeed the Son of Man who has suffered at the hands of the beasts or monsters who now, it seems, include the temple and those who run it, and is nevertheless, nevertheless then declared by God to be his true spokesman. So the disciples have heard, Israel is judged, Jesus is enthroned, and then there's one more thing that they hear in verse 31, and he, God, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So what's happening here? Israel's judged, the Son of Man is vindicated and glorified, and then what does a king do once he receives his kingdom? When a king is vindicated, he's enthroned, what does he do? He sends out his ambassadors to proclaim his kingdom. He will send out his angels, and the word angels here could be translated messengers. Whether they're spiritual angels that go and empower the preaching of the gospel, or physical messengers that declare Jesus is Lord and Savior, they are sent out to every end of the earth, to every end of the heavens, to all nations with a loud trumpet call to proclaim the king, to proclaim his kingdom. And through that proclamation, gathering God's elect from the four winds. This is what I believe to be the current moment that we stand in, where God has set up Christ. Christ is exalted and vindicated as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus has sent his ambassadors. He has sent his messengers to proclaim that Jesus has come and lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. And that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That he laid down his life and he shed his blood. And that Jesus rose again from the third day. So that if you would repent of your sin and believe Jesus as the Savior and Lord, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. 
That is the proclamation of King Jesus that is happening to this very day in this room and all over the world. It's what God is doing right now. And it is through that proclamation, through that declaration of King Jesus, that the elect are hearing the gospel and they are believing and they are coming in to the kingdom of God. And you say, well, who are the elect? Well, what are they talking about? Guess what? I don't know. That is to say, I don't know here in this room, on this earth, I don't know who the elect are. So I have one job, and you have one job as well, to proclaim the gospel to every human being, to to tell every creature on earth, Jesus is the Savior and Lord. And it is through that proclamation of the gospel of Jesus that the elect believe. It's an effectual calling. They hear the king call, they believe, they trust, and they come in, and they are saved. That's what's happening right now. Word of God is proclaimed. Jesus is proclaimed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the only Savior. In fact, Jesus' last words in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, are to this very point. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the King, is what he's saying. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. That's what the disciples would have heard Jesus saying. Israel's going to be judged. Jesus will be vindicated and enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the gospel will be proclaimed. The gospel will go global. It will be proclaimed from one end of heaven to the other. In concluding this answer to the disciples, Jesus then, in this first question, remember the disciples have asked, when will these things happen? When will one stone not stand upon another? In concluding that answer, which is what Jesus gets to here, he wants to comfort and encourage his disciples. He wants to ready them. And so he says in verse 32, he says this, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way that leaves on trees in spring or leaves on a fig tree here in spring tell you that summer is coming for sure, Jesus is saying, so these things will verify for you the coming of the destruction of the temple, the coming of the raising of Jerusalem. Look at the trees. You see, spring is always followed by summer. So what I've said will always meet its mark. It will always conclude and always be true. He says then in verse 33, so when you see all these things... There's that phrase again, these things, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. When you see all these things, you know that. And here's where I disagree with our English standard version. It says he, they made an interpretive decision and put he in there. But that pronoun he is not in the Greek language. It's it. When you see all these things, you know that it, the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, it is near at the very gates, the gates of the city falling down. So Jesus is saying, I've spoken My word is true. It will happen. Just like the fig trees, when you see that little bud, you know that spring leads to summer. It's going to occur. These things will happen. They're at the very gates. And then Jesus says the phrase that we trip over so much. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if Jesus is speaking that to his disciples and these events happen 30 or 40 years in their future, Does that line up with that statement? Absolutely. The destruction of temple, the raising of Jerusalem, that occurs in their lifetime, in their generation. So there's no contradiction. 
Jesus can say these things are happening. But when we understand them with 21st century glasses instead of 1st century glasses, we get tripped up. All these things will take place. This generation will not pass away until these things take place. And here's where he concludes it. And he says, you can rely on my word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He's like, take my words to the bank. Trust them, every one of them. Believe on them. And so for us, we can rely on his unchanging word. Heaven and earth may dissipate. Jesus' words won't. They're lasting, they're sure, they're enduring. I hope you see this morning that Jesus isn't a liar. His word is reliable, it's faithful and true. You may be a skeptic and you might like to try and poke holes with passages like these, but really you're poking holes in the insufficient and imperfect knowledge of people who do their best to explain these passages and and sometimes don't get it there. But Jesus' words, they won't fail. His words are reliable. And this is very important for us to understand because it takes us to the broader picture of what Jesus has said in Scripture as a whole particularly about the end and his coming. It's important for us to understand and to look, as the future is unveiled before us, what does that mean about how we live today? So Jesus, in the Word, in the Scriptures, has told us, I think, three things that we need to recognize this morning. Jesus has said, one day we will all stand before God, the judge. Every one of you here in this room this morning, every one of us will stand before God and we will be judged. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So friends, you've got to recognize that you will stand before God as a judge. And you may be like Israel, you can be like Israel, and you can hear the word, you you can be around religious things, and you can reject Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And if you do so, you will be subject to an eternity in hell, suffering the righteous wrath of God for your sins. You don't have to be presumptuous towards God in your life. You shouldn't be. Don't think that because you live in America or because you attend a church service that that's enough or that's it. Don't be like Israel and think your religious activity is what makes you right with God. It's not. Christ is the one who makes us right with God. And it is through His perfect work, His atonement, His sacrifice for us. So note that you will stand before God as a judge one day, and you will either have Jesus' blood pleading on your behalf, Jesus' blood covering your sins, or you'll try and earn it your own way, and you'll be judged. So humble yourself today. Not only has Jesus said that, but Jesus has also said that he will return as King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no debate in the Bible that Jesus will come again. He will come physically. He will come bodily. He will judge all things and make all things new. And as he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords, it means we must respond to him. Scripture says in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus is king. Have you recognized him as that today in your life? Have you humbled yourself and repented of your sin and dethroned the kings of your heart, dethroned yourself as king over your life and given yourself to Jesus and trusted him and his grace alone? Humble yourself to Jesus and rely on his work to save you, not your own. Every knee will bow. There will not be one human knee that does not bow and acknowledge that Jesus is king on that last day. You can 
Bow humbly today, willingly, trusting him, banking your life on him and his word, and experience his love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. Or you can stand there with a hard heart and a fist against God, and your knee will be bowed on that last day. Don't reject Jesus as the king, but give him the highest place in your life as king of kings and lord of lords. So Jesus has said he will come again. He will judge. We will stand before him as the judge, and he will come again reign and rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus says, the good news is for you. Friends, we don't have to fear God's judgment. We don't have to fear that last day when we stand before him. The good news is that Christ has come in fullness of love for you and for me. He he has given himself completely in every way. Jesus' unchanging word has told us of his love for us, and that you don't have to suffer and die and, and experience eternal conscious torment forever and ever because of your rejection of Christ, but you should see and experience and lean into the love of God today for you in Christ. All of your sins forgiven, past, present, future, every opposition that you would have, Jesus has dealt with in his blood. He's good enough for you. So come to him. Jesus has said, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, his name will be saved. Everyone who's turned from their sins, believed in Christ, and placed their hope in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. So come to him today. The good gospel is good news for you. Jesus loves you. Trust him. Believe him. And if you have turned to Jesus, you and I have a mission. And that mission is to be ambassadors for Jesus. It is to take up the call, the call that Jesus is king. And it is to broadcast that call to every man and woman and child, every human being on the planet. To say, Jesus is king. Believe him, trust him, turn to him. You are his ambassador. It's to take the gospel to every tongue and tribe and people and nation. It's to take the good news of King Jesus to every neighbor and every coworker, and every friend, and every family member, so that they know Jesus is the only Savior, and His love is for them. The imperative mission of Jesus that He gives His disciples is to go and make disciples of all nations. Make sure the gospel gets everywhere. It's good news for everybody. So you see, Jesus isn't a liar. What He said here in this passage It's fulfilled, it's happened, and we have a mission ahead of us. We can rely on His unchanging Word. Friends, that's the hope that I would give you today. What Jesus has said, you can believe. You can take it to the bank. You can trust Him. And because of that, you can go and share that good news with everybody so they might know the love of Christ, they might be saved, and He might be glorified. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your reliable, unchanging, unfailing word. Thank you for helping us, Father, even in times where we see uh, things that are difficult to understand in Scripture or there are are interpretations that just don't make sense and the skeptics and the critics will try and blow holes in, in the truthfulness of your word, but your word is true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will not pass away. So, Lord, give us grace to to understand your word. Give us grace to rely more on your word, to trust you, 
to know that you are our King and our Lord. I pray, Father, this morning that as the gospel is proclaimed, that you would cause us to be fruitful in mission, Lord, that, that people would come to Christ as the good news is proclaimed. Help us not to get worried about end times timelines, but to get worried about and passionate about the mission. Help us to do that until you come again. We thank you for your word. May we rely on you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.